Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Believe that you have potential and believe that you can make a difference. Now then, making a difference might only be one small thing. Today I'm talking to Mike Tynan, who is a nuclear expert and advisor. Some have called a nuclear veteran. Mike lives in Preston with his wife Janet and son, who's a teacher, and the daughter lives nearby. Welcome, Mike. It's great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. Great to speak to you. So, Mike, you were telling me earlier, you grew up in this little village called Keekel, which is like a single row of houses in between Cleetermore and Whitehaven in West Cumbria. That sounds absolutely idyllic. What, tell us what the, the younger Mike was like in those times. <laughs> well, all my early memories are about living in the pub at Keekle. Because um, it, it, it was a single row of houses with one pub. The pub had been in my family for a long time. My grandmother and grandfather were landlords. My mother and father took over from them as landlords, sorting out cellars, moving bottles of beer, stacking shelves, changing barrels, um, helping my mum and dad in the pub. But one of the interesting things about that, and, and I think something that, that you wouldn't believe at the time or even you know think about at the time, it was the beginnings of VAT, which was a, a significant administrative task for people who who had pubs. And you know in, in, in those days not all the landladies and, and, and the landlords had a, such an understanding of dealing with figures that they could cope with VAT returns. So one of the things that I ended up doing for my mum and dad was v, the VAT returns. And, and to go with that, keeping the books, cashing up. I never realised at the time how that would come back to stand me in good stead. So, so that's a lot. My memories of, of Kiko is working in a pub. <laughs> and doing the books as well. And you're absolutely right. That did stand you in good stead. Well, you must have had a head for figures. I'm presuming you had a head for figures. I wouldn't have thought that I had, but obviously I did. You know, so um, yes. And, and the other thing as well was that we always had dogs and um, you're surrounded by countryside, three or four miles from Ennerdale. And so my other abiding memories are of being out in the fells, naturally not having to get a car and drive to the Lake District, but just to walk into the fells around Ennerdale and Ennerdale Lake. You know, that's another fantastic memory of, uh, of, of, of my youth. And you were telling me earlier that your dad um, was involved in, in building um, Calder Hall. Yes, I mean, when we look back now and, and we talk about, you know, the civil nuclear program in the UK, and, you know, I've been in presentations around the world where people have spoken about Calder Hall as the first civil nuclear power station. My father was on the construction team at Calder Hall from 1953 to 1956. 
and then continued to work there as a, in, uh, as, as a storeman at, at Cold Hall. Um, and so but when I first started with British Nuclear Fuels at Sellafield um, in, in uh, 1975, I was fortunate the first job was at Calder Hall in the same building as my father. That must have been fantastic for him. I see that you started work at Calder Hall as an assistant clerk. So you must have been uh, using your organisational skills and perhaps your head for figures even then as well. Well, yes. And again, I remember, you know, at, at my interview for the job and um, I was asked the question, did, did I have any experience with figures? And so I recounted to them the work I did in, in, in the poem. And, and I, if I remember rightly, that's, that sort of took up most of the interview. <laughs> and, 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 and so, yes, um, you know, working in, in the general office of Calder Hall, it, it was brilliant. I, I remember it vividly, the people, you know, the, um, what it felt like, you know, the excitement. I was 18 at the time, you know, and it was an exciting place to be. One of the big advantages was that in the general office, you dealt with all sorts of different things about the plant. You know, so it, it, was, a, it was such an interesting job. You know, it wasn't sitting down doing one or two things uh, 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 as a routine. The, the, some days, you know, you, you didn't know what was going to happen. The, all days um, seemed different. So it, it, it really was an ideal introduction in, in, into the world of an operating nuclear plant. And, and, and have you got an example of something that maybe came across your desk one day that you thought, crikey, I, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do that? Because you know what happens when you start work. You think, well, I know nothing. But then you discover as you try things and talk to people and work with others that actually you can learn pretty quickly. Did you have those sorts of moments? Yes. And I remember at the times that when you start work, everything's new. Everything's new. Even after you've been at work a few months, things are still coming up every day that you don't know how to deal with. Now, the big advantage, and I think, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of what you learn for the future, there was three of us in the general office. There was myself as the junior clerk, and there was two clerical officers. And, and they were great blokes, Pat Healy and Ralph Armfield. And they were helpful, friendly. The supervisor was a great guy called Joe Eden. Anything that cropped up, you could just ask them. And they were so helpful you know, and cared about you. And you felt that you were part of the team. And so I had no compunction of saying, you know, what do you do with this? How do you do this? I don't know what to do. And it's so important, isn't it, to, to sort of feel like I'm asking a silly question here, but to have people around you who do want to help and make, you know, your role a success and can give you the advice. It makes all the difference. Well, it does. And you taught me something that stayed with me right throughout my career and now is more important than ever and when you think that I learned this principle you know 45 46 years ago don't be afraid to ask the silly question because other people may be thinking it but just can't ask it so don't ever think that a question is a stupid question and and I learned that right from the beginning with people who encourage me to do so. And when you think about those people and the, 
the simple advice that they gave at the time and the way that they treated you at the time wasn't down to any management course that they'd been on. It was just the way they worked in a team, naturally, and the way they encouraged. And so I was so fortunate to work with good people. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say there about that was the culture at the time. Um, my, that was my experience when I started at UKAEA. And one of the things looking back on it, what we achieved, and it'll be the same for you, you couldn't have done it without that sort of team uh, culture and that ability to work together and that ability to um, listen, to learn, to ask, answer questions. Uh, and it just brought you together. It was absolutely fantastic. So it's good, really good to hear that. Well, the, the other thing about that, Andrew, it, it, it encourages you to try different things. It does, yes. And from that, my supervisor uh, said to me, with, within a week, we, we need to get you to technical college. Um, I want you to um, go on a business studies course, Mike. And so within four weeks of me starting at work, I was enro uh, enrolled at Workington Technical College on a business studies course, which was one day a week out of work on a Wednesday and one night after work on a Thursday. So how, how long did that sort of carry on for that, that, that programme? That was for, well, it, it was a two-year course. Um, and at, at the end of the first year, you got a, a general certificate in, in business studies. And then at the end of the second year, you ended up with an, um, an ONC, Ordinary National Certificate in Business Studies. But at the end of the first year, my accounts tutor um, said to me, Mike, you know, you should be studying professional accountancy. And um, again, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, my uh, accounts tutor, her husband was a senior accountant at Sellafield. And so I, um, I got a sponsorship from BNFL to study accounts, accountancy uh, at Newcastle. And so um, that was the beginnings of my career. I qualified as an accountant um, four years later and, and all of my significant early career with uh, British Nuclear Fuels was as an accountant. Yes, and you were, you were auditor, you um, senior in that, a manager in that. Yes, uh, I, I was in the BNFL's internal audit department, which was based at, at Risley at Warrington, um, which if you can imagine, Andrew, at the time, how exciting that was. Local lad in West Cumbria, you know, goes to work at Sellafield. 12 months later, uh, he's at university at Newcastle. And three years later, he's based out of the company's head office at Warrington with responsibilities for every site and suppliers and external organisations and having the privilege of being able to dig into all of the detail that went with the finances of those sites and those organisations. And so I enjoyed that job. And, uh, you know, accountancy was something that I was, that I was good at. I was overall second place prize winner in my final exams in, in the Institute. I spent seven years and went up through audit, audit senior, audit manager, you know, uh, before eventually returning to, to sell a field on a full-time basis in, 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 in the mid eighties. That job was, was fantastic. 
I, I saw and was involved in every British nuclear fuel site from when I was 19, 20 years old. I was covering all of the sites. You know, I spent a lot of time at Cape and Earth, a lot of time at Springfields, a lot of time at Head Office, a lot of time at Chapel Cross, a lot of time at Windscale and Calder Works. You know, so um, what a fantastic in, in introduction. And it was a job that I loved. And what do you think people saw in you? Because you, your career was progressing. So people must have been encouraging you. They must have seen something in you. What, what do you think they saw? I think it was two things. One, it was a, a desire, a drive to get to the bottom of things. If things aren't right, why is that the case? So typically when you've, when you've conducted an audit and you, you go to the closing meeting, you present the, your, your client with, with a list of problems. This is what I found and this is what you need to put right. One of the things I used to do was, was to say, this is what I found. I think this is what's causing it. You may want to look at that because this is what you need to do as an action plan, which I'll be following up on. And then I always used to follow up. So one of the things that it taught me um, was uh, an attention to detail, a rigorous pursuit of what's actually causing the problem, as opposed to just painting a very bright picture of what the problem is. One of the things that, that, that developed from there, again, which, which has stood me in good stead right throughout my career, and even more so now, is questioning attitude. And later on in my career, when I went to work on plant, questioning attitude, why is that happening? What's happening here? Why has this happened? What should we be doing? You know, and again, so, so going right back to the very beginning, that little foundation stone of ask a simple question, then developed in my early accountancy career to questioning attitude. Why is that? And then the other thing as well was, if, you know, uh, people often sort of tell you a story when you're, when you're doing audits and they, they try and um, sort of uh, pull wool over your eyes and, and bluff you. And so I think one of the other things I learned was that, um, you know, uh, not to simply accept things at face value. Well, I was going to say, because what you were doing, you know, pe people might think, I mean, I'm not an accountant. My goodness me, that would be a disaster. But but I know when I was thinking about it, all I was kind of thinking it would be was was numbers and spreadsheets and making sure the numbers were right. But what, what you're saying is actually, yeah, you, you do need that. But then you're scratching beneath those numbers and asking the why question and gaining insight on a company or a facility or a particular part of an organization that then enables you to take action to develop things. Yes, Andrew, what I realized that it wasn't just looking at figures, it was looking at systems. So how did the system generate this? So now if, you, if you're conducting an audit in stores, you know, then you have to understand how the store system works. And to understand that, you have to understand how do they maintain stock holding? When do they decide to restock? What's the system if you're on plant for getting things from stores? So in order to understand, is this stock balance correct? You need to understand the system that generates a stock balance. 
you need to understand why things are sitting in stores. And I always remember there was part of stores that was a section called M spares. And I always remember saying, what are M spares? You know, and then learning, you know, how those spares were, were, were kept for plant on, when plant was constructed and, you know, it's a, you know, a, a original components that can be held for future use. You start to understand the systems that make things work and the outcome is just a stock balance. That excited me and, and I was in that job for seven years. And I can, I remember, I'll tell you a story. I remember saying to my wife, one day when I came home, I'd, I'd been working at Springfields and I came home, I lived in Whitehaven and I came home on a Friday and I got back home about five, six o'clock so tea time on a Friday. And I remember saying to my wife, I love my job so much. I would do it for free. You see, I didn't always come out with sensible things. I can tell you that's how much I love my job. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because if you've got a job that you are skilled at and that gives you energy and is rewarding, you do flourish as, as, a, as a person. And you're absolutely right, because I, the question I sometimes ask myself is, when is a job a job or when is it a hobby? Because you, you enjoy it so much it can become all consuming. I'm sure you were, you know, thinking about a lot of these things, you know, at home or, or, or whatever, and walks in the fells and all sorts of things because you're curious and it's just part of who you are and that's what you're focusing on in a particular day. It is, and I think that's even more so now, Andrew, that I'm sort of, um, let's say, retired from executive leadership but still active in the, in, 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 in the nuclear industry. And because you love doing things so much, it's like, is this a job or is it just what I do? Because I enjoy it. But going back to what happened then, and it's incredible how these sort of what seems like natural transitions take place. But I remember clearly being a head office and being called in to see um, the HR manager. And the HR manager, who, went, who at the time, a girl called Sue Tandy, went on to be HR director at Sellafield. But at the time, in the mid 80s, Sue called me in and said, Mike, you know, we've been looking at your reviews and progression, and we think you should perhaps consider moving to general management. I said, well, okay then, which at the time I found quite frightening because I loved my job so much and I enjoyed it so much. And it, and it, it seemed such a big change. And so my first question would be, well, why? You know, I love my job. I'm doing a great job, you know, and and everything's working well. And, and now you're saying, stop, everything's got to change, you know? Um, so I said, okay, well, well, what would that look like? And they gave me two choices, which is always great, isn't it? When you've got a choice, you, you don't feel cornered. And, you've, and, and, and when people give you a choice and ask you to talk about it, you're then involved in the decision. And that immediately starts to make it less frightening. And the opportunity I had, or the opportunity I had was to go to Chapel Cross as uh, the works accountant at Chapel Cross, or to go to Sellafield as the works administration manager. And so after a great deal of thought and thinking about what I'd done and what I enjoyed, I went to Sellafield. That very quickly led to a brilliant opportunity, really one of the bricks of my career, which was founded upon a, a very difficult incident at Sellafield when um, the site discharged one of its um, 
low level liquid waste tanks to sea and um, resulted in some contamination of beaches and the beaches in West Cumbria were closed, if you remember, Andrew, in the mid eighties. A recommendation from the, uh, what was then the NIR, Nuclear Insulations Inspector, which is now the ONR, was that Sellafield should introduce consistent management systems across the site. And therefore, BNFL committed to the introduction of quality management systems at Sellafield to comply with what was then BS5750, as we, which we better know now as ISO 9000 series quality systems. And they had, they were given five years to introduce those systems across the site. And so, and so they looked for people to populate uh, a brand new quality assurance department. And they looked for two, they, they recruited an external head of quality assurance, and they looked for two disciplines Firstly, was people who understood systems and could help develop quality systems. But the second was systems audit. And so they looked for people with audit experience. So I put myself forward and said, I'm not an expert in quality assurance, but I am an expert in audit. And I, it was a great move. I ended up as the head of quality audit at Sellafield in 1986. Now then, we had five years to implement ISO 9000 series. And that was so exciting. You know, I found quality assurance filled with the same disciplines as systems in accounting. So I understood it. I enjoyed it. I worked with every single plant and department at Sellfield in its entirety with the team to introduce quality assurance systems over five years, and we were successful. The site was uh, accredited, uh, certificated in 1992, and um, that was a wonderful project. But what that did, it got me onto every plant and every Newton cranny at, at Sellfield. And that was my introduction, my real introduction into systems in operations. During that time, I, I, I'm picturing in my mind's eye that those plant operators may not always want to have some quality system put on them or even develop it themselves because it's a change. Did you find any resistance? And, and, and if so, how did you kind of overcome that or work with people who possibly may have been reluctant or, or maybe I'm completely wrong? Maybe people were really up for it. They recognised the importance and they were all behind the project. Uh, no, you're right first time, Andrew. And let me tell you why you were right, because it was seen as an imposition. It was seen as an imposition. People ran their plants and you need to, to maybe picture the culture at the time. The works manager, as, uh, as senior managers were, were, were known on operating plant at the time, the senior position was a works manager um, and they ran their works. They were accountable for it. They were responsible for it. You know, it was their works and they ran it their way. You know, so for someone to come in and say, you have to comply with a site-wide system. You have to be consistent. Your documentation has to be the same. Your procedures and instructions have to have not just the same format, but based on, on, on the same protocols. You know, so it, it, many, many people saw it as an imposition. So the way around that, were, uh, and, and it was difficult. It was difficult. And there was two things you could do. 
you could insist that it was implemented. So that's sort of, um, you know, with the big stick saying, well, it's happening whether you like it or not. Or you could persuade them that this was a good thing for them. Now, in order to persuade them it was a good thing, the first thing that was necessary was to know what you were talking about. So not only did you need to understand quality systems, you know, and the benefits of them and what you could achieve, you know, in great detail. So you really needed to understand your business. How could you sell it if you didn't? You needed to understand it. But the second thing you needed to understand was their plant and how their plant worked. So you could then say, if you do this, this is the benefits that you will get. And the only way to do it successfully, and I think one of the reasons we were successful was because we had a team of people, um, and I remember them you know, quite clearly, people like Martin Evans, Dave Marsh, they, they, could, they could sell the benefits of the systems, and that's what made it work. And, and so that was an entirely new skill set in, in, in about understanding people, understanding their motivation, understanding the job that they did, and then helping them to do that better. And that was one of the fantastic things about implementing that quality assurance system. Behind the paperwork, behind the documentation, behind the systems, behind its protocols was people and working with people, helping them to do a better job helping them to deliver their responsibilities and their accountabilities in a better way. And, and that was what was be, that's what was behind the, the, the project. And that's why I think it was successful at the time. It's really interesting to hear that, that sort of story, because often I think these things are a balance between the people and the experts who know their plant, they understand their plant and so on, and the sort of quality process and, and, and safety procedures and things which sort of set out um, uh, you know how those things are going to be managed uh, managed safely and with the right quality and all the rest of it and so my, my, I've got a slightly different maybe slightly naughty question now how do you think that balance between people on the one side and process and procedure on the other side has evolved since that time when when that quality stuff was coming in? Uh, that's a, that is a good question, Andrew. I think it goes in swings and roundabouts. As an industry, our single overriding number one priority is safety. You know, and to have a successful business in, in the nuclear industry, you have to have a safe business. That's the number one priority. That should never be forgotten. That sometimes leads to an over-focus on procedures and an over-focus on systems at the expense of forgetting that there's people behind them. Then if you go too far and focus too much on the individual and, and the people and forget about the procedures and the protocols, that's a recipe for disaster as well. So what has to be remembered, and this is so important, is that management systems, and I was talking about you know, the quality assurance system there, but let's talk about management systems because they include safety and the environment. And so I like to refer to these things like integrated management systems. Integrated management systems are there to show the world how people discharge their responsibilities. The two are completely interlinked. The systems are there to demonstrate how we are responsible, 
how we are accountable, how we maintain control. In certain circumstances, particularly in emergency situ situations, you need to go to command and control environments and you have to be able to switch in, in, into that. Therefore, you need systems, you need understanding, you need protocols and you have to do things by the letter. Under normal operating circumstances and in business situations, you need the integrated management system to demonstrate to people that you do your job well. And, and that's, the, that's the balance between the two. So if you go too far one way, you've got a problem. You're too far the other, you've got a problem. So bearing in mind that the integrated management system is part of how you as a person deliver your job should warm you to the system, help you to understand it and give you some motivation to learn it. But don't leave it on the one side as if it's some framework that's just there for other people to deal with. You know, at some point in time, particularly in leadership roles, it's going to stand you in good stead and help you to demonstrate how you discharge your responsibilities. So a balance between the two is really important. And I think if you strike the right balance, it, it's a key ingredient of successful business. Yes, you've got the strength of both, haven't you? You have. Yeah. So Mike, I'm going to jump a little bit forward in your career because one one part which I know people will be interested in is when you became the director at Springfield's Fuels and you'd, you'd had various roles at Sellafield in terms of facilities management and waste treatment and so on. And then you went to Springfield's Fuels. And I'm interested in, I think, two things really. One was why that change happened. What was, what was sort of motivating you in that change? And the second thing, you are now a director. So, and then you're managing director and so on. Um, so everybody is then looking to you and how did that, how did you sort of feel about that and how did you uh, respond? Do you know, at, at the time, if you look back at what I'd, I'd done through sort of the quality assurance and then into facilities management and setting up site services at Sellafield, which again was a wonderful job. And then moving from there onto operating plant and running waste treatment plants at Sellafield. And then, um, I was at head office at Risley, helping to manage the transition from BNFL into site license companies and went to Springfields as part of the project team in transitioning, you know, BNFL Springfields, the UK fuel business, into Springfields Fuels Limited. When, when that transition was completed, you know, I was appointed managing director, it, it just felt like a natural transition. It just felt like a job that I'd been designed to do. It was everything that I'd enjoyed. It was everything coming together in one job, you know, and, and so that, that was um, a wonderful moment and, 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 a, and a really fantastic job. What a brilliant job and, and, a, and a great sight. I regarded Springfields, and forgive me, this will be partisan for maybe some listeners, but, you know, but... Um, I regarded Springfields and the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority said it in, in a letter to me. It was the jewel in the crown of, of, of the UK nuclear industry. And that's how I felt about Springfields. You know, fantastic people, a professional team, you know, it was a quiet man of the industry. It got on and did its job. It was never in the headlines. It just delivered fuel week in, week out. You know, what a great sight. Yes, it was a very proud moment to take, uh, be, to get the privilege to take over at, at, at Springfields. When you, once you got through the initial period of like, wow, I've got this job, then you have to face the challenge 
and the challenge at Springfields that was given to me via the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority was you need to close this plant as safely, as cheaply and as quickly as possible. That was the challenge for Springfields. So that, that was the job and I was, yeah, let's set about it. So I remember Andrew, and let me tell you another story vividly. It was October, the October 2006. And it, it was a beautiful day. And I went for a walk around the plant at lunchtime. And I was looking at the oxide fuel complex at Springfields, you know, which in nuclear terms was a baby, commissioned only 10 years ago with a potential life of what, 40 years, maybe 50 years. So I went back to the office and I thought, why are they closing this plant? And that might really seem the number one stupid question for a managing director who's been given a job and say, here's your mission. So I spoke that afternoon. I put a call in to the NDA and I said, I'm, I'm going to ask you a stupid question. Why are we closing Springfield's plant? Nobody gave me a clear answer. So I thought, right, what else might, could we do with Springfield's? With the team, we started thinking, what might a different future look like for Springfields? And we set up a, a team. The, the existing plan at Springfields was known as oxide only, to close everything down and just move to oxide fuel production. We set up a project and we went through it very quickly. We developed a program called Fueling the Future. And we made a proposition that Springfields could not only fuel the existing generation, but a new generation of, of nuclear reactors. So we wanted to not close Springfields, but develop Springfields. And so we completely changed the mission for Springfields. And that was a difficult job because everyone had it in their mind that Springfields was closing. And people had, were taking voluntary severance and they had plans to leave in their early 50s. And all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, oh, hang on a minute, we're not closing, we're growing. You know, that is a 180 degree change, you know. Um, and so that was, again, such an exciting time. And that resulted in us within, within two years, taking Springfields back off the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority as Westinghouse and taking a, a commercial lease on the site to operate Springfields as um, a Westinghouse site. And um, that was a massive, massive change. It took the commercial fuel business out of the NDA program. That was brilliant and not just enjoyable, but, but so successful and, and formed the basis uh, of the Westinghouse plans for the development of the AP1000 in the UK. Because my view, and, and the view that was the basis of, uh, of my discussions with government and with the Westinghouse board, was AP1000 in the UK. Build it, operate it, fuel it, service it from the UK. Full scope nuclear operating business based on the fact that we could maybe develop nine reactors at, in, in, in the UK, nine AP1000s, three at Wilver, three at Albury, three at Selfield as a starter. You know, and then where might we go? You know, Hartlepool, Hesham, couldn't take three units, maybe take one unit, who knows? But that was the aspiration at the time. And that, that typified the drive 
from 2007 to 2011, you know, build the AP1000 program in the UK, fuel it in the UK, service it in the UK. You know, that was the basis of taking Springfield all from a question that said, why are we closing this plant? And, and, that, and, and that was such an exciting time, Andrew, I can't tell you. And then we got into, you know, three years bidding at Wilver, you know, and that in itself, we set up a, we set up a joint venture company, Nuclear Power Development UK, as a joint venture with Westinghouse, um, Lano Rock, Shaw and Toshiba to um, develop AP1000 for the UK. Took AP1000 through generic design assessment um, with, with the regulator. So um, an exciting time, um, Andrew, from 2006 through to 2012. But it just strikes me as a couple of things in that story that sort of resonate through, you know, your sort of career journey to me that, that were really important. One is this asking the why question and not settling until you understand it and have got a view and 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 by doing that not only were you able in this instance to sort of change close the plant into look at what this future could look like uh, but without asking that question thinking it through for yourself and pondering on it that wouldn't have happened but the other thing it tells me is that you are great at working with people and changing perspectives you know and building teams to actually fill out you know that framework that your why question has created to drive something forward all of us in our career have been through various presentations and and courses with consultants on change management and and to, to people who are at the beginnings of the career it might seem extremely complicated and very challenging and hard to do and hard to cope with you know but it doesn't need to be like that so uh, let me say uh, tell you about the, the the change in direction at springfields you know from oxide only to fuel in the future the the oxide only plan had been sold to the workforce um uh, or engaged with the workforce presentations with pictures of what the site looked like now and what it would look like with only the oxide fuel plant there. And so oxide only became a very clearly understood plan. If you look back, if I'd have done exactly what I was asked to do, close this plant as, as, as safely, as quickly and as cheaply as possible on the oxide only plan, and we'd done it, it would have been seen to be equally successful. But I said, well, actually, no, there's more value earning money to pay for the closure of the plant as opposed to expecting the taxpayer to pay for it, which was a, which was a big selling point to, to UK. I can earn money from this plant that will pay for its closure instead of you having to fund it out of the public purse. It was a big selling point. But what I thought was, I have to put another picture in people's mind. So I built a presentation on a picture of Springfields with new plants on it, a new hex plant, a new, a new fuel plant, and, I, and the artist's impression was brilliant. It looked like a real picture of Springfield, you know, with these new plants on it. And what I did, I set about briefing the entire workforce, me personally presenting the plan to everyone. And I believed in, you can imagine having done 20 or 30 presentations 
I, I pretty much knew it off by heart. But the wonderful thing was, every time I did that presentation, I reinforced the plan to me. I became more and more of the plan. And, and when I spoke to people about it, and I, I knew the plan inside out. And so what I presented to people were, this is what a new future looks like. But the important thing was to treat people with respect. Everybody had to see that. And I wasn't satisfied if people missed it. We put on extra sessions so they could come again and get the opportunity to see. So it was so important to have that personal dialogue with people, even though we covered thousands of people, it was important to have that personal dialogue to say, this is the plan, this is where we're going. And so the basic fundamental thing about that is that if you want to succeed, you must do it with people. And you have to treat people with respect. And that's something that I've learned right from the very beginning of my career. I felt it, I've, I've felt it when I've been, you know, described earlier on how I felt when I've been checked with respect and what it meant my, for my early career. But I could tell you stories about where I haven't been checked with, with, with respect and, and what that felt like. So let me tell people who might be listening to this, I understand what that feels like. And I, and I made myself a promise that if I was ever in a position to impact that and to affect that, I always tried to do my best to treat people properly. You know, I, I can't sit here and say that I've necessarily entirely succeeded, you know, uh, uh, all of the time, but I have tried to always remember to put people first and give everybody this, the respect that's, that they deserve, whether they're at the bottom of the organization or the top of the organization, you know, whether they're a change room attendant or a, or, or a director. Everybody's entitled to the same respect. And why is that, Andrew? Why is that? It's because every single person, every single person without fail has potential. And the job of a good leader is to let that potential free. And to put in a good team together, putting a good team together is matching all of the potentials. And what you see in a team is its potential, not where it's been and what it's done, what its potential is. And if every single person could access an extra 10% of their potential, which exists within them, and often it's only them that's holding it back, if they could access that extra 10%, think about what that looks like over 100 people. Think about what that looks like over 1,000 people. When you've accessed 10%, of the potential of a thousand people. That's what makes a difference in organizations. And the other thing that goes with that, and let me say this to, to people that might be listening, you have that potential and never ever forget you can make a difference. You can make a difference whatever job you're doing, whether it's at work or in a hobby or at home, never forget you make a difference. And when you start to access that, you make a bigger difference. And that's what makes successful businesses. Really inspiring, actually, because, you know, people will feel as you're talking. And I can see why you're such a great leader, because you inspire that self-belief and excitement in people 
to you know to give of themselves into into that future and to realize some of that potential perhaps stepping outside their comfort zone from time to time to see what might happen um i'm going to take you back now to to when you first came into calder hall power station as that assistant clerk um who wasn't frightened of asking questions but and was well looked after but if you could give your younger self a piece of advice at that point in your career what would it be it would be the same then as it is now i see it more clearly now as you look back on things and i didn't realize it at the time but what i would say to myself is believe in yourself believe in yourself believe that you have potential and believe that you can make a difference now then making a difference might only be one small thing but if you want to make a thousand percent improvement you can do one thing that's worth a thousand percent or you can do a thousand things that's worth one percent so you can make a difference and you should recognize that in yourself and in doing so don't worry too much about what plans look like in 10 years or 20 years time on a daily basis to make a difference do the best job you can always always treat your job as if it's the best job you ever had and make sure that you're the, you want to be the best at what you do. So do your job well. If at any time ever in your career, you find yourself worried, anxious, stressed, don't know which way to turn, talk to someone. Talk to someone. And the old adage of a problem shared is a problem halved will stand you in good stead. But always talk to someone if, if, if you're in, in any way concerned about anything. But the number one challenge to yourself should be access your own potential and make it happen. Make it happen. That's fantastic, Mike. Oh, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. You're welcome, Andrew. Thank you. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you